It is a joy to be with you. It is a joy to hear the testimony and the witness of the gospel of Christ going out in the community and to remember that all of that comes together because we do have a conviction that a thousand tongues is not enough to praise the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to continue that idea as we talk about assurance this morning, not just to speak of the doctrine, but to speak of how it relates and magnifies the magnificence, the eternal magnificence of our Savior. So will you join me now in prayer toward that end? Oh God, our Father, we know what your word teaches about this doctrine, that our security and our salvation is sure. It is unwavering, but as we go through this, as we discuss and see this laid out in your word, may we see it how it is fully laid out in your word, and that it all goes back to amplifying the majesty, the unsurpassed faithfulness of your Son. That for eternity, the saints of old and the saints redeemed will pronounce that we have a God who saves not only in His Son, but who preserved us to the very end. And that will be our eternal song. Because he alone is worthy, and he alone has accomplished this, and he has held us fast. And that puts your son's magnificence on display. Help us to capture that this morning. May you both comfort our hearts and convict us. But even more, may you lift up our eyes to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it is for his glory that we pray. Amen. Adam, with his pastor's heart, asked me this morning to speak on the doctrine of assurance. And he picked that topic because at this time he knew that we would afflict and discourage you with midterms. That's what he said in his email. After all, what better way than to demoralize you by taking you to the heights of engage and then plummeting you down in despair as we test you? And all the professors of the Master's University says, Amen and Amen. So he wanted to balance your desperation and exhaustion with something encouraging. And so in light of the fact that I'm summoned to speak on assurance and in light of the fact that this is because of midterms, Humor me as I begin with the topic of the tiger mom. For those who don't know, a tiger mom is an Asian stereotypical mom who pushes her children and demands of them to the extreme. Now to be clear, to be clear, not every Asian parent is this way. My own mother was not a tiger mom. And non-Asian parents can be this way, and really this mentality is not even restricted to parents. As we will discuss, this mentality can be found in a coach, it can be found in a teacher, and that's really what I want to hone in on. There is a certain logic here, there is a certain rationale that pertains critically to the doctrine of assurance, and that logic just so happens to be well documented in the Tiger Mom. Years ago, I had several friends who emailed me and said, Abner, you've got to read this book on the Tiger Mom. It just explains her thinking so well. And so humor me as I illustrate this very critical rationale through the Tiger Mom. The author of this book that I read discusses how a Tiger Mom exhaustively regulates her child's behavior and activities. 
Her children were never to have or attend a sleepover, go over to a friend's house to play, or be in a school play. They were never to complain about not being in any of the things that I just mentioned. They were never to watch television or play video games or choose their own extracurricular activities. And you might say, wow, that's pretty regulated. That's pretty strict. Why does a tiger mom do such a thing? Because a tiger mom relentlessly pushes her children in a variety of areas, including music. For example, her children would have to play violin or piano or preferably both. And they could never practice less than three hours a day on each, if they did both. And they could only practice, they had the privilege of practicing only three hours when they were on vacation. And the tiger mom had arranged with the hotel to have their child play in the lobby or in the basement of the hotel for three hours. This was pretty effective because, as the book reports, by age 14, the tiger mom's child would play in Carnegie Hall. <laughs> Woe to you if you're 15 and in Carnegie Hall. <laughs> Even more beyond music, this is driven by a ferocious drive for academic success in her children. Her children were never allowed to be anything in any subject less than number one, except for two subjects. You say, wow, there's an exception. Yeah, gym and drama. In fact, this reflects a mentality that schoolwork always comes first, and A- minus is a terrible grade, your child always must be two years ahead in math, and children should only be allowed to be in activities that win a medal, and notice, this is a direct quote from the book, notice the language here, it's that medal, not should be, or we would like it to be, or it could be, it will be gold. And you might say, what does this have to do with midterms or assurance? Well, tongue-in-cheek, it could be worse. That's one way to encourage you. <laughs> Imagine what you're going to get on your midterms, and you have a parent like that. And some of you are saying, but I do. <laughs> hey, we're praying for you. And we really are. But more to the point, this is about a certain mentality. This is about a certain logic, and I want to hone in on that now. You might have thought, in reacting to what we've just said and what we've just observed, that such a tiger mom has a low view of her child. She doesn't really believe in her child or has a, has a low perspective, a low value of them because she treats them so. But that is absolutely false. Nothing could be further than the truth. The author of the book reports that she, as a tiger mom herself, the author was a tiger mom professedly, and she says she had the highest view of her children. She had the highest value of her children. She believed the most in her children. She believed, in her own words, she assumed they were strong. That's why she challenged them. You see, her highest assurance drove the highest standard of perseverance. The highest assurance drives the highest standard of perseverance. We might think if you have confidence, if you are secure, then you don't let anything challenge that because it would undermine your security. But there is another logic that says the highest assurance drives the highest perseverance. And that isn't just a tiger mom, that's a coach. If they really believe in you, they'll push you. Same thing with the teacher. This is the critical logic 
of assurance. The highest assurance drives the highest perseverance, and that is seminal to the doctrine of assurance. You see, when we talk about assurance, on one hand, we understand the Bible teaches that your salvation is secure. It is unfailing. Passage after passage proclaims this to us. Romans 8, 28 through 30, there is a golden chain of redemption so that those who are predestined are glorified. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Romans 8, 38 through 39, and along that line, John 10, no one can snatch us from the Father's hand. Philippians 1, 6 recalls that Christ who begins a work in us will complete it. That's assurance. 1 Peter 1 says that our reward is in heaven for those who are being kept. God keeps us unto that reward. Ephesians chapter 1 reminds us that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee and Jude reminds us that we will be presented before God blameless and pure. Even the Old Testament in the New Covenant proclamation guarantees that because God transforms his people they will have the promises in the end. And so from Old Testament to New Testament we have a clear attestation that our salvation is unfailing. It is sure. That is without a doubt. On one hand the Bible teaches us the doctrine of assurance. But on the other hand on the other hand, we start to see these warning passages in Hebrews, or in 1 John 5, a sin leading to death, or Colossians 1, where Paul says, if you abide, if you remain. And those passages make us feel a little uncomfortable because we pit our doctrine of assurance against the doctrine of perseverance. We say, well, these can't work together, and so we use the clarity of Scripture on the doctrine of assurance to make all of those passages go away. Well, those don't apply to me. I don't have to deal with that. And we don't just do this in our head. We do this in our heart. We do it in our heart. When we walk our Christian life and someone warns us or someone challenges us, sometimes we have the attitude, well, I'm fine. I've got my salvation. I'm okay. It's all good. It's assured. I don't need to worry about that. And so in our head and in our heart, we have a logic which pits assurance against perseverance. One threatens or undermines the other. But that's not biblically how the logic goes. If we look at this doctrine biblically, we see that the highest assurance drives the highest perseverance. They're not pitted against each other. They drive each other. They leverage each other. And that is what I want to talk about this morning. I want to take us to the heights of assurance. I want us to see how powerful it is, how amazing it is, and that will provide us comfort on every level. But at the same time, if you understand how powerful assurance is, then you will also understand that the highest assurance drives the highest perseverance. And that will convict us, especially those of us who are apathetic, or distracted. And the text that I want to bring us to this morning that holds this together is the book of Hebrews, and I want to walk us through the book of Hebrews and really end with Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. And as you're turning there, you might think, hey, I know that passage. That's the passage that teaches you that if you were once enlightened and all these different things and fall away, you can never repent again. People use that to show you can lose your salvation. How does that prove assurance? My job this morning is to turn that passage on its head, or to put it better, right side up. Right side up. So that you understand this passage is actually not a threat against your assurance. It's one of the greatest proofs of your security. 
because the highest assurance drives the highest standard of perseverance. Now to do that, we're going to need some context. And we're going to need context not just to prove that the book of Hebrews is about assurance and perseverance, but hopefully we can learn some important lessons about these doctrines along the way. Indeed, Hebrews by design is a book about assurance and perseverance. I think you guys know the historical background of this book, that the Jewish people, Jewish believers, were under tremendous pressure to go back to Judaism. Why? Because it's more comfortable. Why? Because they feel at home there. Why? Because it's lonely sometimes being a Christian. And so it's easier to re-identify that with which you were always once with. The pressure is tremendous. And you might say, well, what's the harm? I mean, what happens if I don't really persevere? I mean, I'm not hurting anybody. What's the big deal? The author of Hebrews reminds us that there's a lot more at stake than we might realize. On a personal level, the danger of such an attitude would be that, as it says in Hebrews 2, you drift. And the idea in Hebrews 2, when it talks about drifting, is that you move away from Christ and you don't even know what's happening. That's how dangerous this attitude is. But it's more than just you. It goes bigger and broader than that. The author of Hebrews understands that we, as a church, we are Christians. And our mission is to be all about Him. We are in Him and unto Him. He is preeminent in all. And therefore, if you shrink back, you are compromising the church's witness. You are bringing the church down. That's what's at stake. But since our witness is tied to the glory of Christ, if we lack perseverance, then we bring Christ down as well, in a sense. We drag his name through the mud. And so there is much more at stake than meets the eye. It's not just for you personally. It's relative to the church and the clarity of her witness. And even the glory of Christ is associated with your walk with him. It is associated with your walk with him. It's a big deal. And so to prevent this drift and to secure the church for generations to come, God raises up the author of Hebrews to preach a compelling and powerful sermon to announce Christ so that you would see who he is and what he has done and all the riches therein. That's your assurance. That's your assurance. And such an assurance drives you to persevere. In Hebrews 4.14, it says this, let us hold fast to the confession. And in Hebrews 10.23, it says this, let us hold fast to the confession. Did you see how it repeated itself? The beginning of the book is about perseverance. The end of the book is about perseverance. This book is about perseverance driven by assurance. And there's a goal in this. That in Hebrews 13, as the author says, Christ suffered outside the camp. He was alone. He had shame. He bore it all for us. So the author of Hebrews says, let us go outside the camp bearing his reproach. The goal of this is that we would have such security and that would drive such perseverance that whatever Christ is and wherever he is, we will go. And even if it means we need to be alone, we will be there. And even if it means that we will have to be embarrassed and ashamed, we will stand with him. That's the goal of this book. This book is one of perseverance and assurance. So if we want to think biblically through the doctrine, this doctrine specifically, this is the book you go to. And along that line, I want to give us two lessons this morning about perseverance and assurance. Two lessons. 
Now, granted, we're not going to be able to stick in one passage. This will be kind of a series of messages all sticked together to cohere into these two lessons about perseverance and assurance. But here they are. Here's the first lesson. Assurance displays the glory of Christ. Assurance displays the glory of Christ. And that gives us comfort. Assurance displays the glory of Christ, but it also does this. Here's the second point. Assurance demands the highest perseverance. Assurance demands the highest perseverance. And that's where assurance not only comforts us, but convicts us. Assurance displays the glory of Christ. Assurance demands the highest perseverance. And with this in mind, let's talk about that first point. Assurance displays the majesty of Christ. Since Hebrews is a book of assurance and perseverance, what do you tell people who are disheartened? What do you tell people who are demoralized and discouraged, teetering in their walk with the Lord, teetering in their loyalty with Christ? Here's what you do. You show them Christ. You show them Christ. You proclaim who he is because that is the powerful driver of assurance and perseverance because knowing Christ is the powerful motivator to cling to him. He inspires that. And even more, if you know who is on your side, if you know who is on your side, you realize how secure your assurance is. If you know who is on your side, you know how secure your assurance is. And so the author of Hebrews immediately, from the very beginning of his sermon, announces who Christ is. He bombards us and overwhelms us with reality after reality, glory after glory about Christ. And he begins in the first two verses of chapter 1, talking about Christ as revelation bringer. Christ as revelation bringer. Many parts, many ways, in ancient times, God having spoken to the fathers and the prophets in the last of the days, he spoke to us in Son. And you might think, well, what's the big deal about Jesus bearing revelation, revealing information? Why is that such, so important? Well, you have to realize that bearing revelation, revelation bringing, is tied with history. It is tied with the advancement of God's plan. God used those who brought revelation to advance his agenda. Think about Moses. He revealed scripture, and God used him to enact the exodus. Joshua, similarly, with the conquest. The Psalms are linked with a manifestation, a sampling of the kingdom. Isaiah's prophecies, they set history on a trajectory toward Israel's exile and beyond, and along that line, hey guys, Zechariah and Malachi, their own prophecies pushed the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so with many parts, in many ways, with many prophets, God is setting up stage after stage all of these different pieces of the puzzle, all of these different aspects to his plan that cohere together into one overarching agenda. When you are a revelation bringer, you change history. You change history. But the fact that God now speaks not in many ways, but in one, and not in many parts, but in one, and not in many prophets, but in one, shows you this one is the final revelation bringer. This one is the one who definitively determines world history. This one is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews makes that explicit. Notice what the text says. When did God speak in his son? 
in the last of these days. The latter days. The latter days throughout the Old Testament and New refers to the climax of history, when everything is actualized, when everything is codified and fulfilled. And so here is the idea. Thousands of years of world history, 23,145 verses of theology are now brought into their culmination, into their fulfillment on one man's shoulders, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation bringing is not just about information. Revelation bringing is about the fulfillment of the eternal plan of God. That is what is going on. And to do this single-handedly, to climax thousands of years of world history and over 20,000 verses of theology, you can't just be anyone. And in fact, that's what the Hebrew author of Hebrews explains to us. You are who? God spoke to us in Son. You have to be the Son. He is the most critical, the most crucial, the most central And that is the nature of son. But there's so much more to be said about this. And for this very reason, the author unpacks it for us. What does it mean to be God's son? What does it mean? Well, first we could say, what does God the Father think about his son? What does God the Father think about his son? And it's answered in verse 2. God says, the Father says, that the Son has ultimate honor. Notice the phrase, who he established as inheritor of everything. What does it mean to be an inheritor? It means that you own something and you can use it for your good pleasure. God has definitively established Christ as inheritor, not just of some things, but of what? Everything. Everything is about Christ. Everything centers on him. He has ultimate honor. And on top of that, he has ultimate power. Notice the next phrase of verse 2. Through whom he made the world. You either in this world are creator or creation. If you are creator, you are God, and everything else is creation. God the Father says, my son is creator. He is God. He has ultimate power. Sometimes we might think that the term son may insinuate, may imply that Jesus is less. That Jesus, uh, he's just a little bit inferior. Nothing could be further than the truth. You see, according to God the Father, the term son doesn't mean you're less. It means you're more. You are God, very God, because you have the ultimate power. And even more than that, you are the focal point of the Godhead. You are the concentrated one of the Godhead. You are the one who is highlighted by the Godhead, receiving ultimate, definitive honor. When you are the son, you are not less, you are more. That's what God the Father believed. And by the way, God doesn't just speak this with empty words. He backs it up. If you read the rest of the chapter, there is quote after quote after quote after quote of God declaring this about his son. For example, chapter 1, verse 5, it says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as C.W. Smith once reminded me, do you really think God said this like a robot? You are my son. Yay. (laughs) Really? Do you think God said this like Siri? No way. God said this with passion. He said this with volition. That's my son. That's my son. This is backed, then, by the eternal, unfailing love of God. That's how important Jesus is. And if he's that important to God the Father, 
he probably should be that to us as well. But we define sonship not only based on what the Father says, but who the Son is. Who the Son is. Notice verse 3. The Son is divine essence. Who being the very radiance of the glory and the character of his nature. Now there is this exegetical debate about whether radiance should be translated radiance or reflection. And I don't want to vilify any side or whatever. But radiance is the right answer and it is important. It is important. Because Jesus is not just a reflection of God. Jesus is not just a refraction of God. Jesus is not derivative of God. Jesus is the very glory of God the Father. Indivisible. God, very God, one. One. Not Jesus has a glory, the Father has a glory, and they just so happen to match. No, they are one in essence. There is no division. It is perfectly identical because it is one. That's the author of Hebrews. Point for that very reason, he says, that is why he is the very character of his nature. They are one in essence, indivisible, identical, equal because they are God, very God, one in essence. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, divine in essence and thereby divine in activity divine in activity. He bears all things by the power of his word. He does what the Father does, divine in accomplishment, because if you're divine in essence and divine activity, you can do what God alone can do. Notice what the next phrase of verse 3 says, through whom he cleansed all sin. He cleansed all sin. Now, the cleansing of sin is not just about forgiveness and propitiation, which it is. Cleansing of sin deals with making you clean so that you can always commune with God. That's your assurance. That's your assurance right there. But as we know, who can forgive sin but God alone? This is what God alone can do. And so having done what God alone can do and having the divine essence and divine activity, Jesus has nothing short of divine reward. Divine reward. And we see that at the end of verse 3. He sat down. He sat down. That shows a completed work. And when you sit on a throne, you have authority. What kind of authority? sat down at the right hand. That's equality. He has equal authority, equal reward to God the Father. Nothing from him is shortchanged. He really is the inheritor of everything. And he sits down at the hand, the right hand of the majesty on high. The language of majesty on high refers to God's power, but power with a specific purpose. Anytime the phrase on high is used in scripture, it points to how heaven is going to intervene on earth to make things right. Glory to God in the highest, and what? Peace on earth. Why do the angels proclaim that? Because heaven will intervene on earth to make peace on earth. That's the idea, and that is actually echoed in Revelation as well. What we learn from this is that Jesus, as divine essence, and divine activity, divine accomplishment, and with divine victory, that's not a theoretical idea. That's not just some abstraction. That is how it has been, the way it is, and inevitably the way it will always be because heaven is poised to make that the pragmatic, practical reality on heaven and on earth. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the world changer, the unworthy of all honor, the possessor of all power, God, very God in his essence, the eternal victor of all creation, defined and backed by God's unfailing love. That's what it means to be God's son. 
God, very God. The culmination of all the Father's aspirations and love. Thereby, the most central, critical, glorious, wonderful one of all time, for all time. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of that should inspire us, should it not, to cling to him. He's amazing. He's amazing. I hope some of you, as tried to go through this text, are thinking, man, that's a lot to think about. I, I'm struggling to grasp everything that should be said. Welcome to the club. And it just shows you how superficially sometimes we think about Christ. We just throw a bunch of trite sayings as if that sums him up. We need to know Christ for who he really is. Not just some slogan, but what the Bible in every word and in every detail outlines about him in all he is and all that he has done. We need to know him for who he is. And by the way, when you do that, do you not demonstrate the most profound perseverance? Because aren't you just in love and pursuing Christ? Christ is the deep and enduring motivation for perseverance. And as such, you reflect what you always had, and that's assurance. Along that line, Christ gives us assurance. Christ gives us assurance. Do you really think that Jesus would come, fulfill all revelation, only then to fail because he failed you? Do you really think he would display his glory only to have it then tarnished because he made a mistake and didn't secure your salvation? Do you think he would have invested all that he invested in the plan of God only for it to come to naught because he made a mistake? Do you think God, who backs all of this because of his eternal unfailing love to his son, would just renege on that and fail because they failed to keep you safe? Everything about Christ shows that our salvation cannot fail. If you understand who stands behind you, then you know why your assurance is so secure. There are millions of factors, the complex majesty and glory of Christ and his relationship with God the Father that provide so many compelling and definitive factors that show that your salvation has to be guaranteed. There is no other option that's what the glory of Christ demonstrates. But you might say, well, that was kind of indirect. It's not explicit in this te text. True. So the author of Hebrews is going to go there. You see, the author of Hebrews is going to explain why the incarnation, which might seem like it would tarnish God's glory, Jesus becoming a man, doesn't tarnish his glory. Because there's a hidden glory to the incarnation. And you know what that hidden glory is? Your assurance. Your assurance. Look at chapter 2 with me. Quickly, verses 8 and 9, scan the text as I explain it. Notice the author of Hebrews proclaims that man's destiny was originally supposed to be that we would rule the world. But we don't see that right now. The world isn't right. But verse 9, we do see one made for a little while lower than the angels. We see Christ. The hidden glory of his incarnation is that he secures our destiny. And if he secures our destiny, what is that called? Assurance assurance. But you might say, well, that's nice that it's our destination, but how do we know we're really going to get there? Well, the author of Hebrews is going to elaborate on this. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Notice, Christ partakes of flesh and blood. Why? So that by his death, he might negate the power of the one who has death, that is the devil. 
Jesus exerts the ultimate power in his incarnation to undo death, which is at the end of the process, to overcome that. So Jesus secures the end of the process, and he doesn't just secure the end of the process, he secures the beginning. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. He is made like his brethren in all things, in order that he might be a merciful and high priest toward God and propitiate for the sins of the people. You can't begin salvation. You can't begin your walk with the Lord without forgiveness. So Jesus secures it. So you got the beginning, and you got the end. And what's left? The middle. Look at verse 18. For in what he suffered, being tested, he is able to help those who are also being tried. That's the middle. Chapter 2, verse 18. And I just need to put one thought on this. Sometimes people say, well, could Jesus really empathize with us because he suffered a different way than us? You know, he never broke. Does he really understand temptation? Look, don't get so emotionally caught up in empathy that you forget effectiveness. Let's say you're laying down on a surgeon's table about to have open heart surgery. The surgeon comes in and says, do you have any questions? And you say, yes. Do you empathize with me? And the surgeon says, oh, I do. Whenever I open up your heart, anybody's heart, I really feel so bad that I can't finish the surgery. Do you respond, oh, I'm so glad you empathize with me. Get started. Or do you say, this man's crazy. Get me out of here. Empathy does not mean effectiveness. Jesus never broke, which means this. He knows how to get you to the other side. He knows exactly what you need, when you need it, where you need it, how you need it. And he is interceding for you like that. Beginning, middle, and what? And secured. Your destiny secured. And that provides comfort. Really does. When you are discouraged because of your sin, remember Christ. He's God. And he did what God alone can do. He dealt with your sin definitively. It is secure. When you are exhausted and without strength, remember this. Remember Christ. He overcame death. He changed the universe for your sake. He will have you overcome. And sometimes when you're lost in this life and overwhelmed, and you think, how am I going to make it? Remember this, Christ designed his very incarnation to bear everything so that he could get you to the other side. He has designed everything in the incarnation for your assurance. And in context, the author of Hebrews has used this to prove that his incarnation doesn't make your assurance less, it makes it more. And it doesn't make his glory less, it makes it more. And that means Christ has tied his glory with your assurance. Put it this way, you need to understand this. Your assurance is the masterpiece of Christ's glory. Your assurance is the masterpiece of Christ's glory. And as such, it will never fail because Christ delights in doing this. He delights in making your salvation sure because it shows off who he is in every angle. If you understand who is on your side, you will understand how secure your salvation is. The assurance of the Bible displays the glory of Christ. That's why it's so secure. That's why it's so secure. But there's another side to this. Assurance demands the greatest perseverance. Assurance demands the greatest perseverance. That's the second point. And so with everything I've said in mind, we can now move to Hebrews 6, this infamous passage, one that some people believe makes you lose your salvation. But we need to really understand how this operates, and to do so, you need to understand the genre of this. It's a warning passage. How do warnings work? A warning alerts you to danger so that one of two things happens. You either drive away from it and avoid it, or if you hit it, you can't say no one warns you. 
And so, in light of this, a warning either drives you away or it damns you. And that's the way a road sign works. You look at a cliff and, okay, there's a cliff ahead, sign, move away, you're fine. And if you fly off the cliff, the insurance company says it's your fault. But let's be clear, warnings don't mean that you hit the danger or that it already happened. Road signs don't read like this. They don't read, warning, you died because you fell off a cliff. Bye-bye, ha-ha. That's not how it works. Warnings don't tell you it's already happened. Warnings warn you about something that could happen. That's a real but potential danger. And in the same way, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, isn't saying this is you. What it is saying is this is a warning. This is a real danger. You need to investigate yourself. And you either drive away from this, far, far away from this, or if this is you and you ignore it, don't tell me we didn't warn you. Don't tell me what we didn't warn you. Now to do this, the author of Hebrews has a strategy. He has a strategy that if he used the end results of apostasy, it would be just so clear you would ignore the warning. So he doesn't use the end results, he uses the process. And by definition, an apostate is one who looks like a Christian but is not. One who looks like a Christian but is not. More on that in a second. And so what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to magnify that look like a Christian feature to make you examine yourself so that as you examine yourself and you look at this text, you say, I don't want to be that at all. I, I want to get away as far as you can from that. Absolutely, the warning worked. He drove your perseverance. He drove your perseverance. And again, if you ignore it, don't say we didn't tell you. So this is how, in sum, it works. Turn with me to chapter 6, verse 4. The author of Hebrews first declares about an individual who knows, who really understands that Christianity's good. He's enlightened, and a believer's certainly enlightened, but an unbeliever can ex understand truth as well, and especially in light of the fact of what you're enlightened about. The next phrase explains it. Having tasted of the gift of heaven, or the heavenly gift, now, Christians have definitely experienced the heavenly gift of salvation, but the text doesn't say the heavenly gift is salvation. All it tells you is not what the gift is, the contents of the gift. It rather tells you that it is a gift. It doesn't define what it is. Because all the author of Hebrews wants you to understand is the nature of a gift, that it's good, that it's beneficial. And lots of people can understand that Christianity is beneficial. Lots of people can understand that it's good and useful and that it even might be heavenly. They can understand that. And so, yes, could this be you? Sure. Don't let yourself off the hook, but it doesn't have to be. Similarly, the passage continues to not only talk about the goodness of Christianity, but this person has it with clarity, has it with clarity. Notice the next phrase, he's a partaker of the Holy Spirit. Now, we partake of the Holy Spirit's illuminating, regenerating, sanctifying work. We understand that, but... In Hebrews, the emphasis of the Holy Spirit's work thus far in Hebrews chapter 2 is the testimony about the veracity of the gospel. Well, if you're a believer or an unbeliever, the Holy Spirit does that work because he attests to the gospel. And so you have it with clarity. That could be you, but it doesn't have to be. Finally, it's not just the goodness or the clarity of the gospel, but also the power. The power. Notice verse 5. You taste of the good word of God, even the power of the age to come. Believer and unbeliever alike can experience the preaching of God's word. Let's be under no delusion. And you can even see that it's full of power and it contains eschatological hope. That's all true. That can happen. And so what we have here is a person who knows God's goodness, who knows his power, and he knows that with clarity. That could be you. 
Don't let yourself off the hook. But it doesn't have to be. But with this self-introspection in mind, the next phrase becomes definitive. Notice what it says in verse 6, and falls away. Falls away. This is where it all becomes clear. The idea of falling away, actually in Greek, it denotes falling alongside of. The word parallel is actually used, and it's important to understand this term. Parallel, what does that mean? It means you never intersected something and you never will. You never intersected something and you never will. What does that mean then for this individual? He never intersected Christ and he never what? Will. This is dealing with someone who looks like a Christian but definitively is not. That's what the author of Hebrews is warning about. Don't just play Christian and then definitively never engage. But actually be a real Christian. And if you stop and think about it, this warning's pretty simple. Because this kind of person is very superficial in nature, if you stop and think about it. He doesn't know that much. He just knows Christianity's good, it's a gift, and he knows that it's powerful. That's not really that much. And on top of that, he's very external and superficial. All these ideas of the Holy Spirit's testimony or of hearing God's word, that's all outside of you. That's all outside of you. It's all superficial. You can get that from going through the motions. And on top of that, this is all past tense. Have you noticed that? Having once been enlightened, tasted, heard, partook, tasted. It's all past tense. This person is relying on past experience to justify his existence. But the Bible, the book of Hebrews, describes a believer this way. Those who are being sanctified. Did you hear that language? Those who are being sanctified. This person is much different than a believer. And so the warning is clear. Don't be a superficial Christian who doesn't do anything. You're on a dangerous path if you are. And those of us, we hear this, we think, I don't want to be that. I want to know Christ from the heart. Good, then do it. You're fine. It's okay. And you will persevere. And those who ignore this warning, don't say we didn't warn you. But if it's that simple, why is it that we don't react the, the right way? Instead of driven far away from this warning of what it warns about, we become panicked, we become paralyzed, and we think this text destroys our assurance. Why do we respond like that when that's not what the author intended at all? And it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. We think assurance means we're secure, so we can be at ease. So when anything challenges that, we think there's a contradiction. But that's not the only way to think about it. Assurance, the highest assurance drives the highest perseverance, and that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's just established that assurance displays the glory of Christ, and so it cannot fail. He doesn't just go a couple chapters later and say, forget about what I just said. Let me contradict it. Let me undermine it. No, what he is doing is saying this. There is a danger. There is a danger, and you need to avoid this danger, and even more, I believe you can. And I believe you will. You can do better than this. This isn't you. You can do so much more than this. And so he isn't contradicting assurance. He's leveraging it. He's leveraging it. Put it this way. If you read Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and you think this threatens my salvation, the author of Hebrews is not attacking your assurance. He's attacking your twisted understanding of assurance. That you could use assurance to justify such a superficial life. That you could confuse this, which is limited and superficial and external and going through the motions, with real Christianity. That's what he's attacking. And then, that means there are three responses to this. One, we've already warned over and over. If this really is you, you've never touched Christianity, you never will, 
realize this, you're playing a very dangerous game. You are playing a very dangerous game. Repent. But for most of us here, sometimes we're terrified. I don't want this to be me. Then don't. Get away from this. Love Christ from the heart. Endure. Persevere. Know him deeply. This warning will drive you to persevere with the assurance you always had. That's the key. But there is a third aspect here. Some of us here think we can play the game and be superficial. And realize this. Assurance doesn't just comfort us. Oh, it does. It convicts us. And it reminds you of this. Don't you dare twist your assurance to justify a superficial Christianity. You can't remain here. You've got to be more than this because the highest assurance drives the highest perseverance. And you might say, well, are you sure? Like, that's the right interpretation? Yeah, I have an answer key. You say, really? What is it? Next verses. It's very handy. Verse 9 of chapter 6, this is what the author says. We are convinced. Hear that? We are convinced. We are persuaded. That's assurance. That's assurance. He's coming at this with certainty of better things, better things regarding salvation. He says, look, this is not you. This is not a Christian. There's something way, way better. And notice what he says in verse 12. In order that you might not be slow, but imitators of those through faith and patience receive and are inheritors of the promise. He says, you can do better than this. You can be better than this. And we want you to be better than this. The highest assurance drives the highest perseverance. As we reflect on the doctrines of assurance and perseverance in Hebrews, let me just put it this way. I think we take assurance lightly in two ways. One, we doubt its security. We, we have the audacity to doubt its security, even though the glory of Christ is associated with and drives our assurance. That should give us comfort on every single level because he cannot and will never fail us. But for that very reason, do you think if Christ invests his glory into assurance that it's just going to be mediocre and you're just going to barely skate by? Absolutely not. And that's the second mistake. The greatest assurance drives the greatest, the greatest perseverance. As we leave chapel, we need to draw comfort from this, but we also need to be convicted by this. And when we do that, when we are comforted by the great security that is in Christ, and that drives us then to keep going, yes, we will stumble and fall, but we keep going, we keep pressing on, then we show the full glory of Christ in assurance, one that is both secure and effective. And that puts Christ on display because the highest assurance drives and is clearly seen in the highest perseverance. Let us understand this and live it out all for the glory of Christ. Shall we pray? Lord, we are thankful for this time. May you be glorified in your brilliant work of assurance. May it drive us. May it comfort us. And may we live lives because we are already secure and your transforming work is assured that magnifies your majesty. And so you would be lifted high. And in the end, we would proclaim for eternity, you held us fast. And that is your glory. And all glory goes to you. In your name we pray.